Well, we're in the second week of a series we've titled 40. We're in what's called the season of Lent, which is from Ash Wednesday to Easter leading up to it. It's considered 40 days of prayer and fasting. Now you'll count it, it'll be 46. Typically in the tradition of the church, we don't look at Sundays as one of those because every Sunday is to be a reminder and a renewal of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. But this season, we take a journey. It's not just a journey of looking at Jesus' path to the cross, but it's our own journey, kind of our own spiritual journey of discovery and engagement. I just want you to understand this. We went over it in more detail last week, but 40 in the Bible is significant, not because of the number and quantity, but in quality. And so what 40 typically signifies in Scripture is a season of testing, And make no mistake, it's not testing like we want to find out if we pass or fail. The word in Hebrew, God's way in life, is to test to raise us up. In other words, times of struggle and difficulty are always given to elevate, to grow the people of God and the ways of God and the life of God. And so we want to be reminded of that as we enter into this morning and as we look into this specific series. Where we're going today is a story of Moses. And we're going into a part of the story that is usually passed over. We have Moses' early life and the miraculous way he comes into the world, and even how that parallels the coming of Jesus. We have his ministry. Once he finally goes to this burning bush, and God calls him to help Israel get free, but we skip the middle. And that's where we're going today. And so we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to take you to two other passages that are two other commentaries on this. But we begin in this section with Exodus chapter 2. So this tells of Moses' adult life, and it starts this way in verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up. Now, I want to stop to just make sure you know this. This doesn't mean Moses turned 18 and suddenly it's like, okay, the day after he was 18, Pharaoh kicked him out of the house, there he went. You know, you tend to read it, it's like, okay, right after Moses grew up. Just so you know, we know this from other passages, Moses was 40 years old when it says one day. So he'd been an adult a while, and it tells us one day he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now, we'll see later the significance of him even going out. But when he comes out and sees them, he sees a circumstance. It tells us that Moses saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, when he sees this, it says Moses looked this way and that way. In other words, he looked around to see if anybody else was seeing what was going on and what was going to happen. It says when he saw no one, he basically took the Egyptian out. He saw the injustice and the oppression of his own people, and he killed the Egyptian in defense of that. It tells us then that he buried this Egyptian in the sand, thinking it was all hidden and no one saw anything. Now it tells us after that, the next day he goes out and he sees now two Hebrews fighting among themselves and he sees one that's dominating the other and oppressing him and he says, why are you hitting your brother? Now we take it up in verse 15. The man said to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? It says, then Moses was afraid. He suddenly realizes what I did has become known. So he is frightened by the reality of what's happening. It goes on, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now it continues, Moses gets to Midian, he sits down by a well, and these seven daughters 
of a priest of Midian, a man named Jethro, come to take their sheep to be watered by this well. As they're preparing to do this, these other shepherds come in and they bully them out of there and tell them they can't water their sheep and they begin to take over. Moses seeing this, I don't know how many there were, but he takes them out and takes them on and he is the champion for these young shepherdesses. Not only does he move them away, he then helps water what they need for their own sheep, takes care of all of them. And it says that the only story we have from this is they go back home to their father and they get home early. That's all it tells us. What it means is Moses not only helped them water their sheep to take care of them, he also did it in such a speedy way that they got done with work early. I mean, it was a good day. They're back home, sheep are taken care of. Well, the dad says to them, well, where is this guy? Why did you not invite this dude to dinner? That's the exact word in the Hebrew, in case you don't know. <laughs> so it says that one of them went back and got Moses. Doesn't tell us who, doesn't tell us how far he was. I don't know if they had to run and find him. I don't know if he was nearby, but they bring him home to dinner. The next thing we hear is this man, Jethro, says, hey, Moses, I love what you did for my kids. How would you like to marry my daughter? You ever meet a nice young man and go, you know what, I think you'd be good for my daughter. Most of us always think you're not good enough for my daughter, but apparently he thought he was. Doesn't tell us any more about it, but guess what? Moses marries her. Then it tells us, very briefly, he has a son, and he lives in Midian for a long time. We know it's decades. We'll get to why and where we know how long. It tells us at the same time, the text does, that while all this is going on, Israel continues in this horrible oppression from Egypt and continues to cry out to God. And it says, God heard them, remembered them, and cared for them. And what follows as we move into chapter three is just the simple statement that Moses is out being a shepherd, an angel of the Lord comes, and there's a burning bush. And we continue on to this dramatic calling and all that God does. Now there's an economy of words here but I want you to understand, this is decades he spends in Midian. This is a time that God's doing something that we often just move right past because, let's face it, you and I like the highlight reel, don't we? We don't like what leads to the highlight reel. We don't even like the work it takes often to get to the highlight reel. But I want to pause for a minute and consider what happened in those decades of life in Midian. Now Moses is a shepherd during that time. Shepherds were equated in the ancient world with kings, with rulers, because they understood, and God uses this metaphor for Israel that he himself is a shepherd, that a shepherd has watch over people just like he does over the sheep. So what I would say is in those years, one of the things we know is very simply that Moses got miyagi'd. You guys know what it means to get miyagi'd, don't you? Let me take you back to some of you who are older that remember the original Karate Kid. The better of the two, by the way. Now, there's times where remakes are good. Not as good. But if you go all the way back, Miyagi, when he gets Daniel, he says to him, he wants, Daniel wants him to help him to train to be a, a, a karate fighter, and he says, go wax all the cars. So he waxes on and he waxes off. And Daniel becomes quite angry as he cleans all the cars, not understanding the connection. Now, in case you've only seen the second version, you don't even care about the first. It's not in HD. It's all these old things. I don't care. And you love the new one. The more recent Miyagi has the young Daniel take his coat off, hang it up, put it on, take it off, hang it up, 
put it on, the same kind of activity over and over and over again. What happens in both movies are that those simple tasks are training him for what's in the future. So we can say in over all those decades that Moses simply was being trained for what God has for him. I first of all want you to embrace that because it's a powerful thought in its own, but I want to take you a step further. I'm going to take you to Acts because in the book of Acts, it describes this very time. This in Acts chapter seven, which is where we're going to go. And in fact, this is where we find out how long Moses was there. It's not written anywhere in Exodus. Stephen, who's a follower of Jesus after his resurrection, is sharing the power of the resurrection and what Jesus has done to the religious leaders. He'll be stoned for this. In fact, they're going to take him out at the end of this, what he's about to talk through, and basically kill him for it. But as a part of the story he tells, he tells Moses' story. And I'm just going to take you to the excerpt of when Moses goes to Midian and what Stephen says about it in chapter 7. When Moses heard this, meaning that Pharaoh was coming after him, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert at Mount Sinai. So you see, this is where we learn that Moses was in there 40 years. Now, we're going to come back to more on this, but let me stop for a minute. We live in a culture that wants things done right now, done fast, and done quickly, and the earlier the better, and we value youth over age, typically. So Moses lived 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. How old is he when he's going to have the burning bush experience? He's 80. Just let that sink in for a minute. What Moses done significantly is after a deep life of seasoned obscurity. I hope you're seeing the picture of this. Unless you think it's just Moses, let me just tell you about a few other biblical characters. Caleb and Joshua, who will lead Israel into the promised land. When they do, after all the time of the spies and the 40 years, guess how old they are? 80. Daniel, in case you don't know the story, even if you haven't been around church, Daniel ends up in a lion's den for not being willing to worship a false god. We always picture, in the, anytime you see an image, it's of a young Daniel. You know how old he was when he gets in the lion's den? 80. 80. Does that change the picture of the lion's den for you just a little bit? 80 years old. Beyond that, God gives him visions and writes the book of Daniel after that, after he is 80. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have John, the Bap- John who will become John the Baptist in their old age. Now, it's a beautiful story, but that one makes the hair on the back of my neck go, oh, just frightens me a little bit. Paul, when he writes Philemon, says, I am an old man. The part I want you to see in this is God is a God of seasoning in obscurity. It's totally contradictory to how we live life, how we think about life, how we think of God moving, what we expect. We expect us to dominate early and later in life to find kind of our way down in retirement. But God is a God of seasoning in obscurity. Moses spent as much of his life in obscurity as he had in the pinnacle of Egypt. And that's profound for us. Because very simply, in obscurity, God breathes significance. In obscurity, 
God breathes significance, and that is contrary to how we think and live. But I want you to see another picture in this. When it speaks of these 40 years, this angel appearing, it says he had two sons. And when you read the Bible, you always look at the meanings of names because they can tell us something. His first son, Gershom, is named, and the Hebrew word for that literally means stranger or foreigner. What Moses is saying is, I am now left Egypt, and I'm in a place I don't feel is home. But his second son, Eliezer, means God is my help. And they're two very beautiful pictures for us that often in obscurity we feel like a stranger and a foreigner, but God is our help. God is our help. God is our help. By the way, side note, not central to this, it's really been affecting me lately. I think desperation is a key to some of the things in our faith, and we live very comfortably, don't we? I think it makes it hard for us to understand literally what it would be like. And yet in the midst of what God calls us to, out of Egypt and into Midian, he calls us to a place where we live life as a stranger, but he's our help. He's our help. He's the one with us. In Hebrews, this is written about again in what's called the faith chapter. Chapter 11 has all sorts of people listed. And Moses is listed in great detail in all sorts of different parts of his life. Let's just look at the excerpt from this time in Midian. In Hebrews 11, it says this. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. See, we don't see that in Exodus 2. All we see is Moses went out and Moses got in trouble and Moses ran. But in Hebrews, we get a new picture. Moses intentionally left the comfort of his life in Egypt to associate with the people of God. Now, when I read this, it is a tough passage to read in our day and age. We live in a time of the greatest comfort and the greatest ease. And I think what we often do is we take that comfort and ease and we go, how can I stay as comfortable and easy as I can with God alongside of that? How can I put Egypt and Midian together? And God's calling us to come out of Egypt. Now, I want you to realize, and it's quiet, so that's how I know this, this is not fun. But man, is it good. Man, is it good. I look out at you and I go, I don't presume or accuse any of us of being overly comfortable or wanting that, but everything in the world we live in says stay in Egypt, stay in Egypt, stay in Egypt. And I think God's calling us in a gritty, wonderful, surrendering way to go, no, let's go to Midian. Let's actually live in different ways. And you have to see this because when we first read it in Exodus, it tells us Moses is afraid. What's it tell us here? He has faith. He has faith. You know what I love about this? Do you know that when we step out in faith, we will also have fear? Do you ever have this where you think, well, I can't be afraid, I gotta have faith. I'm sorry, they both go together. If you need faith, you're probably in fear. I wanna say that again. If you need faith, you'll have to overcome fear. You will deal with fear. And I love the picture. Moses is in fear. He also steps out in faith. He moves from comfort of Egypt to the suffering of Midian on purpose. 
it goes on to tell us more about this. He regarded the disgrace, his disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. He saw something better because he was a looking, he was, I did that last service too. I said he was a looking. He was a looking and he was a finding. I have no idea why I put the A in there, but for some reason I just kept it. He was looking for his reward, to his reward. One of the things that we live in is short-sightedness. What will I get now? How will I get it faster? God is not a God of shortcuts. Man, does he love obscurity over time. Man, does he love what happens. And I love how it says, he left Egypt by faith, not fearing the king's anger. That's not what drove him, though we perceive it earlier. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. He had a son who he called stranger and a son who he called God is my help. In the midst of obscurity, he found the very presence of God. Wow. I want you to understand, we always look to Jesus, not just as Messiah, Savior, King, and Redeemer, and the one who forgives us, but he's our model. He's the one we imitate. Jesus' life, 33 years, do you know how many years he spent in public ministry? Three. The first 30 years of his life, obscurity. That is not random. The God of the universe did not go, listen, I'm gonna put you on the earth, it's gonna take you. Wouldn't you think he'd be going, I better use every minute I have? God's giving us a pattern here. 30 years of obscurity. The foundation of significance is built for the three years of world-changing life. There's a great book called Anonymous that speaks of Jesus' hiddenness, speaks of the winters of our lives, and one of my favorite quotes says this, the sleepy days of winter hide us so that the seductive days of summer will not ruin us. The sleepy days of winter hide us so that the seductive days of summer will not ruin us. You and I live in a place that we want highlight reels. God has made us to be both best and functioning best in obscurity. That's where he does his work. And I think God is more pleased with how we live in obscurity than how we live in greatness. Because in obscurity, we actually find significance. When our kids were little, uh, Jane was really great about reading different things to them, and I picked up along the way, and we read lots of stories to them, but one of my favorite was always this story that we used to read uh, from a, a child's book of heroes called The Story of the Silver Shield. In this particular story, it's about a bunch of knights who each are given a shield to begin with in their journey. It's a castle in the midst of a great forest with great giants that they're battling continually. And as the story goes, when the, it begins and each one's given their shield, it's cloudy. It says as they grow in courage and in character and in honor, the shield begins to shine more and more, even to the point where they'll ultimately see their reflection. But it says for those who do not operate with courage and character, for those who cowardly move away or try to hide or try to self-protect, it becomes even cloudier. And then it speaks, when one has given the greatest battle in the most difficult circumstance, the shield not only shines, but a gold star emerges in the shining of it. So on this particular story, as it tells it, Sir Roland is a young knight who's growing in stature and in character. 
Well, there's a day of battle that's coming, and the leader of this crew says, one of us must stay behind and guard the castle. So Roland is amped up to go and battle the giants, and he says, Roland, you must stay behind. Let me give you the keys to the castle. Roland is incredibly disappointed in the midst of the story. He's bored and waiting, sitting there throughout the day with nothing going on. Somewhat through the day, a wounded soldier returns. As he returns, he comes, Roland opens up the castle, he comes in and the soldier says to him, listen, I'm wounded, I can watch the thing, you go out and go fight the battle. So Roland is reminded of the call he has from the king, you stay here and guard the castle. And he says, no, I must stay. In the midst of boredom and struggle, he stays, he closes up the gate and he waits as the day slowly progresses and he can hear the battle in the distance. Next, an old woman comes to the gate and begins to badger him. He opens the gate up as she's talking to him from the gate and yells to him at what a coward he is and how he needs to go out and battle and how the army is losing. And this voice of just contempt for him says, you need to get out there, you cowardly man. Finally, he shuts the gate just so he doesn't have to hear her screeching voice anymore. And he continues on in his boredom, waiting and waiting and waiting. Finally, a third person comes. It's a small man with a magic sword. And he says to him, you know, you need to come out. I will give you my magic sword. It will give you power to fight these giants. Your team needs you. Come out. And he persists and persists. And now Roland is so taken by it. If I had the right tool, why would I not go and help win the battle? And just as he's about ready to open the gate, this final wave of courage and character comes over him. And he says, no. And as he says no, and as the gate retracts, that small man turns into a giant, and it turns, it was a trap for him. The giant goes away. Hours later, the crew comes back. He opens the gate. They all come in to arrive, and they're all cheering for the champion of the day it was. As Sir Roland goes to bring the keys to return them to the leader, to the king, all look around, and they see Roland's shield now with a star. And they are dramatically confused by it. They're saying, no way, he did not even fight. Why is this happening? The shield got it wrong. The leader stops, he looks at him, he looks at the shield, he looks at those around, and he says, our shields don't lie. Sir Roland has fought and won the hardest battle of the day. He fights the battle of obscurity. Every voice tells him, you must go and be important and be significant and fight up front where all will see and all will be impressed. But he knows the call is to obscurity. The call is to stay where he is supposed to be and live. And I'm telling you, it's the same battle that Moses went through for 40 years because God calls us, the battle we have in obscurity is the battle of significance. Moses having 40 years in Midian is not just a transition time. It's the centerpiece of what prepares him for all that God is and the centerpiece of how God works. In obscurity, we find significance. I think God's calling us in the same way. You know what? I think it's in our day-to-day lives. I think when you go and you do your jobs in obscurity, God's calling you to follow him in his character, in his way, every moment of every day in how you work. I think God calls us to that in how we live and love those around us. I think God calls us to that in the obscurity of our pursuing him where no one else sees because it's in obscurity God changes us and changes the world. 
It's in obscurity that we find significance. It's in slow, seasoned transformation. Boy, I just want to invite us to engage that way in life, to begin to look differently at this. And as I said before, I look out and I see people that are growing in character and grit, and the invitation is embrace this season. Don't say, I can't wait until, or I need to be more of doing this, or I need to be seen in a greater way. Can you imagine what God might do in your life and in our lives if we would embrace the Midian he has for us? If we would step out of Egypt in our comfort and our way of saying we love the pleasures of what we have now and saying, no, no, God will go to whatever meeting you have for us. We will actually live in a way that's different than the culture. You do understand God's calling us to live different than the culture. When, and here's how you'll know if you're, if you're struggling with this. If your answer when we ask you how you live is, that's the way it is right now, everybody does this, you're in Egypt. I don't know how to get out, it's the way life is, you're in Egypt. I don't want to do something that might make me uncomfortable, you're in Egypt. Man, go to Midian. You'll find out what it is to be a stranger to the culture of Egypt, but you'll also find out that God will be your help. And through it, he's going to Miyagi you like no other. Battle in obscurity is the battle for significance. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give us people from the past to show us how to live in the present, that you yourself, Jesus, you model and you lived out obscurity. And so, Lord, I am praying you will show us how to step out of Egypt and to live in Midian, how to live as strangers to the comfort and kind of the enticement of the pleasures of this life in a way that we live in pursuit of you. And God, over a long seasoning, God, that you would change us. Lord, lead us to that end that we would find significance in obscurity. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen.